There are some times when it's like, I don't know how we're going to make this happen, but it's the right thing. So let's, even in, it's kind of gets into the design process. Like let's go way out there and what we can do instead of, I mean, and that's sort of like brainstorming and um, design thinking. It's let, let's not put constraints on ourselves, which I think a lot of people do. I don't know how we're going to do it, but if we believe it's a good idea, let's work to try to make it happen. And of course, along the way, you're always making compromises. Hello, you are listening to the Late Bloomer Living podcast, where we are reimagining and redefining what it means to be in midlife, where we are gathering energy, momentum, and excitement for our next chapter via candid conversations with other midlifers about their own pivots, pitfalls, and triumphs. I'm Yvonne Marchese, your host, and I'm so happy you're here. So I've been thinking a lot about community this week. It's been just over a year since our lives were appended by the coronavirus pandemic. And what a year it's been. (laughs) As I mentioned last week, I got my first vaccine shot and I'm seeing posts from so many friends celebrating their vaccines on all the socials. (laughs) And why are we all so happy to get that shot in the arm? That's my question. Of course, we're all wanting the economy back up and running at full steam and maybe a sense of normalcy, whatever that is. But I think the real excitement is because we are all starved for face-to-face encounters with the people we love. We're starved for hugs, for travel, for spontaneous experiences, the opportunity to meet new people in person, out in the world. to discover art and live music and theater in person with all the ephemeral immediacy and energy that comes with new experiences, to be surprised by the discovery of new places. So today I'm talking to Sherry Huss. I'm giving her the title of Community Maker. (laughs) She's the co-founder of a little thing called Maker Fair. I'm guessing you've heard of the term makerspace. Maybe you've walked into your local library and noticed an area with 3D printers, tools, and materials where people can work communally to design and create projects using their imaginations and their hands. The maker movement started in the early 2000s, and Maker Fair, which has been called the greatest show and tell on earth, has turned into a global movement. There are now over 250 maker fairs around the world in 45 countries, I mean, pre-pandemic. But for Sherry Huss, it's all about bringing people together in community. She grew up in Northern Ohio, a little town called Illyria. And like so many of us, all she wanted to do was get away from home. But home tends to stay with us, doesn't it? She moved to the West Coast and ended up in the San Francisco Bay Area, falling in love with the tech industry. She started off in software and electronic publishing, but she really found her purpose when she got involved in event production, which started her down the path of community building. She was in her late 40s when she found that calling. And this is where her upbringing in Ohio comes into play. She remembered the feeling of community that she loved when she went to the county fair, And she borrowed elements of that experience and put it into the design of Maker Faire. And here's a little hint for community building. Feeding people is very important. Just a little side note. That'll come up. 
Anyway, she stayed with Maker Fair for 15 years, expanding the experience and the brand globally. Now, in her 60s, she's moved on from Maker Fair, but she's not slowing down. In fact, during the COVID shutdown, she and her husband, along with their community of artists and makers, came together to create a virtual gathering called Decameron Row, in which 100 artists created and contributed creative one-minute videos of their personal COVID lockdown experience. They submitted those to Decameron Row as a, a, to, to all come together as a salve for isolation. It is such a cool experience. I highly recommend that you check it out. Oh, and besides that, they're creating a virtual Maker Music Festival premiering May 15th and 16th of this year, 2021. When you're done listening, you can find a link to everything that I'm talking about in the show notes for this episode. I I can't wait for you to meet Sherry. But before we do, if you're new to this podcast, I want to let you know that I created a free guide for you designed to help you start taking the steps towards your next act. It's a workbook called Five Steps to Your Midlife Reboot, and you can sign up to receive it as an email series. It has practical exercises you can use over the course of several weeks to get past feeling stuck. You can do these at your own pace as they'll be waiting for you in your inbox when you're ready for the next step. I'll remind you at the end of the episode and tell you where to sign up if you're interested. Okay, here's Sherry Huss. Let's go. Hey, Sherry, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you. It's great to be here, Yvonne. So I I usually like to tell folks how I found people. And for you, um, it was an episode of Remote Daily. And you're a appearance and 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 energy on that show just blew me away and uh, you know usually when i talk to people it's because they've had some sort of uh midlife late life pivot of some sort and i wasn't sure that you had that particular component to your story, but I just knew I wanted to talk to you because of everything that you have done. Um so I, I appreciate you taking the time to be here with me today. Oh, absolutely. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Cool. So why don't, so why don't you give people a little bit of a sense of um, your background? I I know you did, once we finally talked, I I think the the real essence of your change was probably your move from Maker Faire, leaving Maker Faire kind of going on. But I kind of want to go back to how you got started with Maker Fair and the passion that that was in your life for, for as long as it was. Excellent, for sure. I mean, my story, I mean, I'm going to start actually, because I believe my story has a lot to do with where I grew up and how I grew up. And really, you kind of, it's sort of amazing that at this point, and I'm 63 now, but at this point in my life, that how much those influences, those childhood influences have on you. And um, just so everyone knows, I grew up in Ohio, in Northeastern Ohio, a city called Elyria, went to school at Ohio State, and really, um, all I wanted to do was leave Ohio. I mean, it's sort of funny, too. And um, after graduating, my husband and I moved to the West Coast and kind of never looked back. We went to Corvallis, Oregon, and then landed in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area in, gosh, 1984. I started in book publishing and um, then went into software publishing. I had a degree in business, but you know, you kind of never really know where you're going to go. And I have to say, even if someone said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I still don't know. And I think that that's sort of the passion 
like I like learning and I like experiencing and um, that is all part of my story as well. But after software publishing, um, electronic publishing, which was at Ziff Davis, and that's really where things started for me probably in the 90s when the Bay Area had just started, there was a whole multimedia, the multimedia thing, multimedia development group. And we were involved in software publishing at the time and getting into hardware with sound cards. And when you think back to the days, even, um, gosh, in the 90s, our social, social sites were really places like AOL and CompuServe and Prodigy. And I was heading up like community efforts there and it was really hard because, I mean, it was just text on a screen. Right. So what happened though, was during that period, I was um, also, we were doing CD-ROMs that we'd put into the magazines, Computer Life, Family PC and Computer Gaming World. And I'd really been studying communities. And the big break was when another division in the company, um, which was the event division, which was Ziff Davis Events, actually had me come over. And that's really where I got hooked on events, something called Java One. Um, my husband is a developer, and that kind of is part of the story down the road as well, especially with the Cameron Row. And I really felt that um, developers didn't really want to go to convention centers. They didn't really care about pipe and drape and all that stuff that you think about at trade shows. And what I really felt is I took all that community experience and said, well, developers aren't social by nature. So let's, um, let's mix it up. Let's do things that will make them connect. They like food. They like music. They like gaming. So we really started to kind of transform the convention center. I, um, I had acoustic musicians play music in the, those lobbies and they're beautiful lobbies. So the sound just sort of carried and that kind of filled a sense or a void. Yeah. Um, we had um, food and we had gaming machines. We brought in um, everything from foosball to electronic machines. We left it so that they could talk and be around each other later. And it actually, it really worked. In fact, so much so that even um, my boss at the time who had had complaints from the operations team, like, who is this woman? She's coming in. That's not how we do stuff. <laughs> and, um, and he just said, I wanted to meet you and hear your story. And he said, absolutely, keep going. And so kind of permission and actually even the story with Maker Fair is even kind of permission to play. So it's sort of, you know, I guess things in life, and I suppose even for your audience, um, you know, maybe we grew up feeling like, well, we can't do that. That's not how we do it. But just sort of like permission to do things differently really um, is sort of part of my story as well. But Java One took me into a whole, everyone wanted um, my team to do developer events. So before you knew it, like we had, we had created like the hottest developer agency um, for events in the in Silicon Valley. We did Sun, Oracle, Microsoft, Cisco, Intel, all of their events. And that really is how I got started on the event side. Through that, I got to meet the folks at O'Reilly Media and actually even another event came out of their Web 2.0, um, which was a concept that um, Dale Doherty, who was the founder of, um, of Make and who I worked with on Maker Fair, he had this whole idea that the web was gonna become more than just a browsing platform, that there would be a commerce backend. Um, he couldn't convince Tim O'Reilly at the time, but again, I went to my same boss and said, I really think there's something here. And so we did a joint venture. So everyone that's hearing Web 2.0, 
had a little bit of involvement in kind of bringing that product to market as well, which was sort of the transformation of the web and how we looked at it. After Web 2.0 um, and kind of the developer run, in 2005, I had the unique opportunity to create two new events. One was for Dwell Magazine, the kind of um, modern architecture, lifestyle, furnishings magazine. And the other one was for Make. Um, Michaela, who, Michaela O'Connor Abrams, who was um, leading the charge at Dwell, had always wanted a, um, a design show in the US. Most of them are international. And so that's where we started Dwell on Design. And at the same time, um, Dale came to me and said, you know, we have this magazine make, what would an event look like for it? And that was the start of Maker Fair. Oh. So needless to say, 2005 was a really busy year. And we, both events went, you know, we delivered both events. I think one was in the spring and one was in the fall. And it was pretty clear that I needed to, both of them were a success and I needed to make a decision, which was really hard because I liked what both events represented. Um, although Dwell tended to be, even though it had a consumer focus, there was still a little bit of a, um, there was more of a B2B type event where Maker Fair was truly an event for consumers. And I have to say, um, I just felt a passion and a desire to really um, move forward on the Maker Fair side. I felt um, things that we did, the fact that we were at a fairgrounds, the fact that we brought families together, the fact that there was this multi-generational learning, that there was hands-on and education, all of those things really um, spoke to me and kind of to my childhood. And I really felt that that was the path that I wanted to go down. And that's where your Ohio background kind of kicks in, right? Absolutely. T Absolutely. Tell us a little bit more about that connection. Sure, sure. Well, the whole thing, I mean, again, even looking at events differently, I've never been a fan of convention centers, which is actually kind of an interesting point now, um, given the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. There's just something about them. They're cold, they're impersonal. And I really have liked like alternative venues. So although even with Maker Fair, it, did come down to even economics. I mean, we could not have afforded uh, a convention center either for the type of event it was. But there was something about the fair and even the fair as a child, um, the Lorraine County Fair, like I remember going there and you know, once a year you got to meet people and see people, you got to see new things. There was that excitement of um, you know, seeing the animals, going into the, the, the show barns, even, even seeing like jams and jellies and cakes with blue ribbons on them. And in fact, that's something that I even incorporated into the Maker Fair plan is that I had, um, I think we had about 250 or 300 blue ribbons per show. And everyone on my team from operations to content to marketing, I gave them all like five to 10 blue ribbons and said, go out there and, you know, talk to the makers. And if something that you like, something touches you, Give them a blue ribbon. Can I can I take you back for a second? I'm sure. I'm thinking about that first Maker Fair. Yeah. Is is there anything from that fair that you remember where it's still like that visceral kind of memory where you remember seeing something that somebody did for the first time and being like, yeah. oh my gosh, wow. Yeah, you know, the first fair. So we um we took part of the fairground, the San Mateo County um, fairground. And 
there were days when we thought, gosh, how are we even going to fill this? You know, and, and the interesting thing about Maker Faire is that we would put out a call to makers and say, um, and, and, and even back at that time, the Bay Area is really unique in the sense that it's got a creative community. So it wasn't as hard, we felt, to find makers or groups of makers. So rockets, robots, Lego user groups, um, 3D printers, even back at the time. And a couple interesting things about that fair. The one thing, and especially even coming from a household where my husband's a developer, the challenge is how did we create a show that, that, um, that talked to more of the whole family instead of just sort of a male or engineering type person? Like if you didn't solder or didn't care about electronics or robots, how could we, how could we actually really create something that will keep the family there. And I can remember going with my husband to like these electronic stores. And after about five minutes, I'm like, okay, you know, like, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> so one of the things that I think that was really um, smart that we did is we found a woman, um, Wendy Tremaine. Uh, she was living in, still does live in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. Oh, that's but, close to where I grew up. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. when she was in New York, she called it some, she, she started something called the Swaparama Rama. And what it was, was she and her friends, um, and especially for the folks that live in New York, know that there's like a seasonal seasonality to their clothing. So they have to put things away and storage and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But she and her friends <clears throat> at a young age um, would see like all these women with their clothes. And they decided like, wouldn't it be cool if we could do a fashion swap with them? But she took a little twist on it, and this is the maker twist. She had um, she brought in her friends that were seamstresses and sewers, and so her swaparamarama was: you would go, you would bring clothes, you'd have to bring a bag of clothes to come. They would put them on tables, so you know dresses, pants, shirts, skirts. You'd pick a piece, and then you'd sit down with a designer, and they would take and reconstruct, deconstruct that piece of clothing for you. Wow. So you didn't actually have to sew, but and then you could actually take it to a finishing area where you could silk screen on it or be dazzle or do something special. <laughs> so so cool. we decided um, to call in Wendy and we um, we created a whole hall. I think it was like a 5,000 square foot hall with this in there. And that became a real hotspot for women and kids and maybe folks that weren't as interested in the electronics part of all of it. And, and she even did over the course of the weekend, like they did a fashion show. So, and people would just come to Maker Fair to be part of this whole experience. Wow. So I remember that that was, I think, a really smart move. Um, we did have experiences outside. We also had, being in the heart of Silicon Valley, we had Steve Wozniak, who was a co-founder of Apple Computer there on his um, oh gosh, what are those um, scooters that go around? Um, and then we had, we had um, oh gosh, 3D printers that were sort of X and Y axis machines using cheese whiz to, um, to kind of actually create like 3D printed material. So the first, the first computer or the first 3D printers. Wow. We had something from like actually the NYU ITP program, which is actually a great program which stands for Interactive Telecommunications Program. But they had even something like with plants that had a sensor in there so that they could call you or text you if they needed water. Wow. So it was really kind of this, this fun festival where people were coming and showing what they did and sharing. 
And, you know, the wonderful thing about Maker Faire too is just this whole optimism. Um, people, people were there because they wanted to learn, they wanted to see things, and you could bring your whole family, which there are very few experiences when you think about it that the whole family is actually interested. But Maker Faire was just one of those, you know, it was hands-on, it was spectacle, um, you know, around any corner, you never know what you would see. And just that generosity of spirit um, which came through from it. Wow. So that's, that's the first one. I mean, I remember, I remember we, you know, we set up the day before, which is like, oh my gosh, it was a race against the clock. And we did things again, we didn't have big budgets. We actually never did, but we did things like using fair flags or kind of like the flags to drape and to decorate. Um, like you, like the flags that you see like at auto lots Mm -hmm. So those things are really inexpensive, but they kind of gave it the, the fair feel. Yeah. And, um, you know, we used, we, again, we stayed away from pipe and drape. We, we started using like chain link fence because then it, people could put like banners and things up on the back um, and just let, gave people space and let them create their own environment inside and outside, which is also important. Um, even like the bubble, the, the giant bubble man, you know, who actually was doing bubbles outside and, then the bike community would come. Even things like riding a bike, which you don't realize, but kids in urban environments don't always have access to those things. Again, something that I grew up with in the Midwest, um, you know, a rite of passage was riding a bike, right? You went out with your parents and, you know, got rid of the training wheels and your first ride, it be kind of came this whole thing about independence. But we we had a whole bike corral set up so you could ride some tricked out bikes. Um, we had, we had um, and even bike rides. So um, Cycle Side, which was the pedal power bike rodeo would take bicycles and um, either make little carousels out of them or there were rides that the parents would put, like parents would pedal and it would propel the kid up and around. So it, it um, I don't know, it had the magic and the elements of kind of carnival fair and at the same time you know hands-on you could sit down and make something we even had a room called make play day which was a take apart room and this is even something to think about even again from my childhood to now uh, and I think we might have mentioned this early on too uh, when we were chatting before this call but we had garages because when something broke you usually took it out and put it on the workbench and a parent or, you know, a grandparent would actually look at it, make a determination, see if they could fix it or teach you how to fix it instead of throwing it away. But now our garages are usually filled with things that either we don't want or don't, you know, or seasonal. And when something breaks, it's like, okay, we go get the next model. Right. So the great thing about this is like even kids, I mean, I can remember taking things apart. I can remember taking a clock radio apart as a kid. And then it's like, oh my gosh. You know, how do I put it back together? I have like, to tell uh, you, my son loves to sometimes things break around here and I've still got just sitting just off to the side here. We have like one of those stand up oscillating fans and it's sitting yes. there because we knew that he might want to take it apart and, right. and, and just to see what was going on inside, maybe not necessarily to fix it, but he has gotten to the point he's 17 now. Um, right. He's gotten to the point where. Um, he's fixing our iPads for us and replacing the glass if they get broken and doing That's different cool. things. Like it, it is really cool. It's That's really cool. cool. No, there is this, there is, and actually there's a group um, called iFixit that actually had been involved with us at Maker Fair too. So like repair cafes and whatnot. 
again, it's sort of the great thing about Maker Fair was just releasing that inner spirit inside all of us. That, the scope of it was huge. Yeah, and yeah, did you really. ever, did you ever in a million years think that you were creating something that was going to be so global in its no. reach? And now there's libraries with maker spaces and I right. mean, that all came from Maker Fair originally. Pretty much, pretty yeah. much, absolutely. Um, no, not at all. I mean, in fact, those early years, so we planned it and designed it in 2005. We launched in 2006. In 2007 and eight, we expanded into Austin, primarily because the folks, like there was a strong maker community in Austin and, um, and they talked us into doing it. And actually it was really a lot of fun. The challenge was that period we were heading into a recession. Mm. So we, our business model with Maker Fair was about 50% attendee revenue and 50% sponsorship. Um, those years, it was really hard to even get sponsors early on. Mm -hmm. They didn't necessarily see the value. Um, they were a little concerned because the consumers that were coming to the event actually were tech savvy. They had web, you know, they had blogs and they would share and this whole open source philosophy, which doesn't always jive with kind of corporate America and, you know, I own it. That's mm -hmm. my messaging. So it took us, so in 2008, um, we said, we started seeing that this recession was coming and we were like, okay, we pulled back to one event in 2009. We knew we wanted to go to the East coast. And what we did in 2009, we, um, we formed a joint venture with the Henry Ford Museum in Detroit, feeling that Detroit was sort of the birthplace of American innovation, and also felt that, and again, kind of that, that whole Rust Belt area that I grew up in, feeling that, that this could be potentially what that, like, let's get kind of the youth and the, the you know, the kids and grandkids of a lot of the early um, innovators, let's give them kind of something to work with. And then we went to New York and formed a, um, a partnership with the New York Hall of Science. And that was, that was wonderful. I mean, both of them were great relationships. What we realized is the New York Hall of Science was more mission-based and with, with you know, getting kids learning and hands-on with where we were, where the Henry Ford was more of a mu museum. So don't mm. touch, look. Mm -hmm. But both of them were important um, and in our strategy. And in that year, we also received a $25,000 grant from the Kauffman Foundation to write a playbook, which is what started our licensing program. Wow. So um, we, we worked with a woman, Sabrina Merlot, who's based in Oakland, who had been doing a mini maker fair. Um, she came on board, wrote a playbook, and that started our whole program on really how people could take a maker fair and put it into their community. Yeah. And I mean, I was looking back at, you know, an article that you were featured in and I think it said there were 250 maker fairs around the country, Absolutely. at least as of 2017. So maybe more now. Well, but you know, actually the interesting thing is those smaller maker fairs are going to, um, are going to probably take off and be more important because as people are figuring out how we gather again and mm -hmm. what size feels comfortable, we now at least have um, out there, there are, you know, a lot of those mini maker fairs are at schools um, or with local organizations. We had featured fairs and 
actually some of the largest ones like in Rome, Maker Faire Rome. They, in fact, they did a virtual Maker Faire in December and they started in 2013 and easily, like I've been to probably at least five of their Maker Faires and they're just wonderful um, to kind of see what they've done and wow. Shenzhen, Shenzhen. So kind of looking at like Rome, one of the oldest cities to host, you know, in the world to host the Maker Faire. And then Shenzhen, which is an older city, but kind of newer, how it's grown up to, to just sort of see these events flourishing are really great. Tremendous. But there, but there was also a Maker Faire. There are probably even more mini Maker Faires and even Maker Faires that weren't even branded or part of the program where people were popping up, which is fine, popping up from the schools. Again, just getting people hands-on and sharing. Right, right. I mean, that was kind of like the spirit of it was that open source idea, right? So, so now, like, just to bring us get, getting you closer to your current story, there, there came a point when you, you decided to, to walk away from Maker Faire or, or move on. Yeah. And if I remember right, it had to do with some personal changes for you, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. So in 20, um, 2017, is that right? We had fires in, um, in Northern California. Uh, my mother who, um, passed away in 2019 at the age of 96. Um, basically I realized that I'd been traveling a lot. Also, we had pretty much accomplished a lot of, I mean, I accomplished more than I ever even thought we could accomplish um, in those years. But there was also another team there and really felt that it was time for me to, you know, to move on. And those decisions are always hard because you're, you're definitely comfortable where you are and you know, you know, the field, but I also felt that I didn't know my hometown or my community that I lived in. I mean, I was traveling most of the time. I felt that um, there were probably other things that I could do. And I also felt it was time to kind of step aside and let the team take what we had done, which was pretty well documented and proved the concept. And, um, and really, it, again, it took time. It was hard. And and, and I decided to do it at the beginning of the year. So to be least disruptive to the cycle. I mean, I definitely support Maker Faire and, um, and even to this date, that whole spirit. So nothing was wrong. It's just, sometimes you just know it's just time. And I never, that's the longest I've been anywhere. I mean, you know, when you step back and look at it, the years go by quickly. And so I felt it was time to figure out maybe what's next, take a break and Really what I found is that the break was pretty short. Um, a lot of folks that I'd worked with had asked me to either be on the board or be an advisor for their groups, um, a lot in the making community. One is the Future Food Institute out of Bologna, Italy. And I also realized I had this global network, which is something that's really interesting too. Like how, you know, how did that happen? That was nothing ever planned, but it's so important today to even the works that I'm working mm -hmm. on now. And, um, and then I started helping one, one friend, Gerard, who had always been there for me for like feeding the makers. Like we would do a maker night the night before. And I mean, I had to figure out how do we feed like 3000 people, make sure that we handle all the diet, the dietary requirements, you know, gluten-free, dairy-free, vegan. Um, and my friend Gerard, who'd always been with me and worked with me, figured out how we could feed people with paella. So we could feed 3,000 people in about 20 minutes. And he had huge paella pans, one that he even made 
that's at the bottom of a big stainless steel wine barrel that's on wheels that he can wow. pull. And that became a real important part of maker culture. Um, another thing from kind of youth, like food really brings people together, whether it's fair food at a fair or even people around a table. And we really started every maker fair the night before with this huge paella mixer. And I love seeing it like adapted in different cultures. Like my friends at Maker Fair in France, they found a paella guy and they start the night out before with paella. And it's, it's really, it's quite interesting and endearing. That's terrific. How and, and old that's, were that's you? kind of the beauty of like, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, how old were I when we started Maker Fair? Yeah. Um, I think I was in my late forties. Yeah. That's what I was just thinking. But you know, it's, you know, age never seems to, um, it's sort of spirit. I don't know. Age doesn't seem to like hit my mind as much. It's kind of like. That must be why you have the energy you do. I guess, I guess. But age and time has given me a chance to kind of create a great network. And right now I love connecting the dots and pulling people together. And, you know, and and in fact, just about every call that I make, it's like, okay, you need to be talking to this person. And it still happens today in some of the other programs that we're working on hence to Cameron Rowe, um, which came from working with folks. And um, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I don't know if that's where we're going to go, but yeah, um, it really, it's just um, amazing to have a network of people that um, still share your same passion and have a spark, but come from a different, you know, different worlds. Yeah. I guess what I wanted to ask you about going back to when you started Maker Fair and thinking about the timing of it in your life was, it, it it definitely was a, a pivot for you in going from software development, I think, to events, right? Absolutely. D- did you, I mean, you just, you're one of those people that strikes me as um, y- you just seem like you can like dive in and, and you have no fear. I mean, did, did you have any sense or do you ever have a sense of, um, I don't know how the heck I'm going to do this or that whole imposter syndrome thing. Does that even occur to you? Um, There are some times when it's like, I don't know how we're going to make this happen, but it's the right thing. So let's even in, it's kind of gets into the design process. Like let's go way out there and what we can do instead of, I mean, and that's sort of like brainstorming and um, design thinking it's let, let's not put constraints on ourselves, which I think a lot of people do. I don't know how we're going to do it, but if we believe it's a good idea, let's work to try to make it happen. And of course, along the way, you're always making compromises, like, you know, going in, going out. But, um, but yeah, you know, and I have to say, like, actually, if you talk to my husband, when we got married and back when I was in my twenties, I was just this kind of like, you know, big eyed person, like, wow, this world out here and very kind of shy and timid. So I actually have changed over the years. But I think it's um, having opportunities to just do things. And that's like with Maker Fair and even like in the event spaces. And the great thing about events is that there's a start and a stop. I mean, physical events. So you can always evaluate what you've done and kind of practice to get better. Not always the case in some people's jobs or whatever you're doing because it's just a constant I'm doing this I've got to turn it in there's a deadline but events you can truly say you can try new things and you can 
you can be honest to say, did that work or did that not work? And next time I'm going to do this and kind of move the, move the knobs or the levers. Gotcha. I don't know. It, um, I guess it just comes over time. And it also, I will say it's also developing, developing a team, like having, like the other thing is like maker fair wasn't just me. It was really me finding people that shared the same passion that were willing, that knew that I had their back. I mean, that I would take care of them. And it wasn't always in dollars because believe me, we didn't have big budgets, but I made sure that they were, um, they were heard. They had a seat at the table. Um, we fed them again. I what well, we fed them like, you know, food is fuel. So those experiences, even when the team would come in, we actually had like um, craft caterers feeding them and it didn't cost any more than kind of the crappy trade show food. Like when you got down to it, it was about $30 a meal to feed people. And, and when I found out that it's sort of like, wait a minute, we can do way better than this. And that those times and giving people kind of the love through food. Also, they wanted to come to sit down and they wanted to share stories. And the stories were usually about, work and like how someone could do something better or innovate. And that's part of the whole equation too. So drawing a community around you has really been and taking care of that community. And, and it sounds Mm -hmm. like giving them freedom and uh, to, Mm -hmm. to, to create and roll with an idea. It sounds like that's been the key to the success of what you've done. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I mean, and I think that that's, um, I mean, for me, even finding my own voice and what I could do by having an opportunity to do it made all the difference in the world. And I felt that the same way about my team, um, which we had people that were, could, they could definitely make way more money on any other gig, but they wanted to come together because they could actually influence the job they had, whether they were driving a forklift or hanging signs or greeting makers or welcoming the public, they all would come together and they all would want to innovate and how they could do it better next time. And a lot of those discussions happened around the dinner table or possibly like in the, in the lounge at the hotel or possibly in a suite, just seeing them come together and sharing ideas. And I think that that's a liberating concept. For sure. So I'm curious, uh, and and I find it really interesting to hear you say that back in your 20s, you were shy and maybe not Mm -hmm. as self-assured as you are now. Can you identify something that was a flipped switch for you where that that changed and you stepped into more of the person that you are now? Was there any kind of an event or anything or was it a slow progression? I think it was a slow progression. And I think it was... um, And again, that's the power of events. Each time they kept getting bigger. And when you stop to think about things like I, and even now um, I'm pretty open and generous with my time. You know, like if people say, hey, can you help me? It's like, what's the challenge? What do you need? Okay. Um, I really think it's just sort of a rolling and and, and many times I was never sure how we were going to do it. Like I knew we could do it. But, you know, greeting 100,000 people, wow, how are we going to do that? Like, you know, we have three gay, you know, and what could go wrong? And 
if you stop, if you stop and let those things get to you, you'll never go forward. And I think it was just the power of the team too. We'll figure it out. Right. Yeah. It's and, like that. Um, just we'll figure it out that, that I love that. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah. yeah, I'm going to somehow put that up. We'll figure it out. <laughs> I need to put that on a note in front of my computer. <laughs> I mean, there are certain things like the sun comes up every day and there's always a new opportunity. And even part of the make culture is even um, failing is it's okay to fail because you learn from your mistakes. And that that's what so I key. Right. And we all, um, right. I mean, we're all taught that, that failure is a bad thing, but really, right. I mean, the, the people that, that succeed, it seems to me are people who just constantly step into situations where failure is definitely a possibility and then their failure happens and then they move through it and they don't die. And right. right? That's but, right. But we don't, that's right. We don't teach kids that we don't teach, you know, we're not taught that we're taught. Okay. Do you know you need to do it and you need to do it right and you need to get the good right. grade and 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 that, right. that sense of exploration and stepping into something and 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 not quite making the mark is not valued right the way it should be completely completely and I think that that's the important thing of making and even even if there's been any positive change, even on like school systems. Again, as a kid, being hands-on, touching, feeling, seeing something has actually also helped me propel. So giving kids an opportunity to see things, which I always felt that the fear was for me. I saw something, it made me think of something, it took me to a different place. That's why I feel like Maker Fair is so important, or even making, or even having adults in kids' lives that are doing things. Um, you know, my grandfather, my grandparents, um, came over from Europe in his teens and went into like, they were, um, doing like household jobs and whatnot in the Cleveland area, but watching them take even things from their childhood. Like I can remember walking with my grandfather, um, in the spring and getting willow tree branches where he would make, and I still have a basket that, you know, like they, their life, there was a cadence of their life with even the seasons that was more than just even their job which somehow got lost in the you know after world war ii we chat about this too where people became more less aware of their environment or the seasonality of things even with food for example um and convenience and you know I mean, I can even remember as a kid though. And part of this is like, this is where I even struggle. Cause even like TV dinners as a kid were like, wow, you know, when your parents went out, you could have those dinners in the aluminum tray. Right. They represented something, but they also took, took us to maybe a place we, sh you know, like maybe not the right place. And I think that everything coming back now, um, you know, farm to table, uh, people, even the pandemic has brought out the fact that people are aware of where their food comes from, which is even something in Maker Fair. I always felt food is the most basic form of making. You know? Yeah, the the pandemic has really been, I think, the 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 hidden gift in it has been this stepping back that everybody's had to do and to to take a minute and look at really what we value. And that time to time to just 
take a step back from it all and not worry about what we're wearing because you know I got my sweatpants on right now and it's nope, just nope, just nope, everything. Nope. It's just this simplification of life um, that's available right now, combined with technology and what that makes available mm-hmm. to each of us to create and be in touch with people outside of our homes and to and to create things and not have gatekeepers that keep you from from doing that and distributing it out to the world. I mean there's just so much the, the right. timing of this pandemic with technology to me is phenomenal. Like what's possible. Completely. Completely. I mean 5 years ago, 10 years ago, it would have been a very different story, right? We didn't have like everyone pretty much has a mobile a mobile phone now that has camera capability or computers or technology and even access. I mean, I live in Sonoma County and we still have challenges getting internet and whatnot. But when we moved here 20 years ago, we had dial up modems, mm-hmm. you know, if you could get it. And I remember storms would take trees down, which would take power lines down. Squirrels would eat through the wires in the box. I mean, it was like almost impossible, but now for the most part, and we still have a large part of our population that, you know, does not have connectivity, but we're certainly in a better place. Yeah. I mean, the, the my kids are full remote with school and, and the, I mean, unfortunately that means that they're spending a lot of time on their screens. Um, and that's how they're connecting with friends is playing games and being in chat rooms together and doing stuff like that. But, but the cool thing is, is my, my 17 year old has become a very accomplished baker during this time, which, uh, which is just that's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it's great. It gets them away from the screen and, and doing, you know, making delicious things that I get to benefit from, but he's fascinated by it, you know? No, that's awesome. But yet, and even the screen time gives them a chance to check out new recipes, see what other people are doing. It's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting time we're living in yet again. It is, which leads us a very nice segue into what you're doing now and, and what you've done. And I'm, I'm curious to see where um, Decameron Row, tell us a little bit about the germination and and, and the origin of that project. Sure. So last, um, about a year, well, gosh, we're almost, not quite, probably about 12, 13 months ago after the pandemic started, a group of us, of creatives, um, came together and we started talking about what really was happening. And at the beginning there was, if you remember kind of the feelings, which it seems like a long time ago, we were all kind of a little afraid. We weren't sure what was happening. Our world was changing. Um, we couldn't travel. Maybe we couldn't go into a workplace. It was a really funny time. And we would chat, um, Itamar Kabovi, who's probably at the core of our Cameron Row team based in New York. We would chat daily. And he had just returned from Berlin at a documentary um, uh, workshop that he and um, another Cameron Row member team won were attending and the idea came up of the Decameron and I don't know if if your listeners know the Decameron but if you were a first year college lit student you probably studied the Decameron which was Giovanni Boccaccio's piece from the 14th century during the big the black plague 
and 10 friends fled from Florence into the hills. And for 10 days, those 10 friends told stories to each other. So that was the idea of what is our Decameron? Like, what would it be now? Um, and this was when people were like starting to be locked down. You can't move, you can't go anywhere. And so we decided that we would look at um, having, our, having our friends create a one minute video of their life during lockdown. Really simple, use your, cam use your video camera, do it in landscape if possible. Um, try to capture the emotion of your period and keep it to a minute. And there were four of us, so um, a filmmaker and a designer, Juan, who did the, um, the artwork and the graphics. Itamark Abovi, Itamark came from, he was the executive director of Palabolus, which is a dance group um, and also a producer of the Five Senses Festival in New York. Stephanie Sobel, she is a professor at Gettysburg College and also the art and architecture editor of the LA Review of Books myself, and then I wrangled my husband in as our developer, um, since we had this idea and we knew we wanted to do it. And it's like, well, I know someone that can do it. So we talked about it in March. We kind of formed the gang in April and started putting out invites. We kind of created Google Docs of who we could invite. And we all went out there and we started getting a few in. We worked with the LA Review of Books, which was a first sponsor for us and not a financial sponsor, but more of a promotional sponsor. Mm -hmm. And then we launched it in July um, and we have eight buildings. It is the coolest thing, folks. So uh, real quick, I'm just going to throw out the, uh, not not that people do this while they're listening to the podcast, but I want to put it out there, decameronrow.com. And it's so cool for just for me, I'm, I'm going to describe it for, for me going in. It's you're looking at this row of a 2D drawing um, graphic of looks like New York City to me of eight tall buildings side by side, this row of buildings and windows. And as you scroll your your mouse over it as your mouse scrolls over, let's say a window, the window lights up and then you get a, a, here we go. I'm looking at Paul Lazar, Big Dance Theater, New York, USA. So that's whose project is behind that window. It is the coolest thing. Like a couple of my favorites. I just love Padma the chicken is one of my favorites by Trish C. And I don't, I can't remember the one with their, uh, I think a little girl um, who has a bucket over her head and she's got a nice little rhythm going with the banging the bucket with oh. a couple of drumsticks on the side of her head. And that is done on a loop and then intercut with other really simple home video types almost like has a super eight kind of feel to it. it it's just just so cool yep. clever well done short simple i'm still working my way through all these they're they're so so fun yeah you know actually one of the um brian siebert who's a new york times author said it's sort of like an advent calendar and yeah you, know, you never you never know what it's going to happen in in the window and then you also you can start playing with something which our team now has formed a group called imaginary place places and which is our design studio but the whole idea is even these residents are living next to each other like it's sort of fantasy it's sort of real it's a little bit surreal kind of like the pandemic is for many and the interesting thing is 
even seeing after what happened with the whole George Floyd incident, we started getting maybe a little bit more political. Like there's a great one by Lynn Sachs where she is a filmmaker and, you know, she's, she captures kind of a, a snippets from a protest. The, the, I think the building 56 in the middle, there's a New York minute by Ben Schott. That's just wonderful too. It's in the upper, the middle building in the upper left-hand corner. Um, which is just kind of wonderful of like how we all felt. And even remember like when New York, like at seven o'clock at night, at the beginning of the pandemic, all the residents were banging the pans. Yes. So it captures the spirit of, of um, what we are all living through during those first few months. Um, there was another one by Amanda Stern, and she talks about it's a lot of just video of her in her apartment, working out, doing stretching, doing her thing, but talking about what mm-hmm. she calls skin hunger. And I think so many people can relate to what that felt is still for people, the lack of touch, the lack of being able to hug, um, just really touching. No, for sure. And what we're doing is to continue. I mean, this is, this is like an experiment in community. It's an experiment in an imaginary place. Um, we are doing a monthly variety show called Last Sundays, the last Sunday of every month. It's uh, one o'clock Pacific, four o'clock Eastern, and we're pulling residents from the row um, together, usually around a topic. Last month's topic was on identity, and we pulled a, a different different groups together. And if anyone's interested, info at thecameronrow.com. If you go there, we'll we'll send out the the link. But it's really um, it's interesting to see where we'll take it. We'll be coming up on our year anniversary and we're talking about, do we expand the row? Do we add new things? Do we let even row residents, do we let them move in and out from the buildings kind of like real life? Yeah. So there's lots of discussions and we'll, we'll see where that goes. But that's really cool. I'm glad to fun. hear that you think that you, you might be extending it out. That's, that's an exciting yeah. thing. It, it because what you've captured there is a particular point in time, which I think is worth, worth keeping. I mean, just to toss in my own two cents that, that in and of itself is like this time capsule of, of, you know, being in lockdown and, and that's particular early point of this, but here we've rounded the corner into 2001 and we're still experiencing it. It'd be nice to see that extended out. Agree. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, so cool. What, what does it feel like to be doing something that's a new project that is um, so expansive at this point in your life? Um, it feels great. And we're also, um, actually my husband and I launched something called the Maker Music Festival, which was live in 2018 in our area. And we've just started plans for doing a virtual Maker Music Festival which will take things that we learned from Decameron Row, kind of combine things that I learned from Maker Fair, and we're looking at putting this out in mid-May of this year. And wow. a week ago, a week ago, we pulled together the music makers, and it's been wonderful. I have a, a screenshot of them. Everyone has the biggest smile on their face to be together and collaborating. And again, I'm not sure where this is going to take us, but. Um, 
it's one of those things that we would have never been able to pull together this international group of music makers if we weren't in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Because we would have looked at, let's spin up the next version of our local Maker Music Festival. And we have, um, in fact, actually, in after this um, session, I'm going to be talking to a woman in Berlin. I have a lot of European folks, a gentleman from London earlier in the week. Um, they're going to actually be curating buildings. Uh, everything from um, experimental instruments to kids hands-on making. And we're going to have a global presence of music makers. And the other interesting thing is, which they brought up and I hadn't thought about, but it's we're also creating an archive of, again, works from very similar to Decameron Row, but a kind of a, a platform or a venue for people that may or may not have had a venue to be with their contemporaries or peers, you know, um, a live, like a living instance on the internet. So I have no clue where this is gonna go, but I'm excited. And even as people like the one gentleman, Tom Fox from London, who runs a program called Acoustic, he teaches 300 kids during the week, uh, his programs, and these are a lot of experimental and new music type projects. They've um, done shows at the Tate Modern. Uh, he keeps like, again, he's introduced me to more folks from Malaysia and it's going to be really quite interesting. It's, it's the spirit of the community. And again, it's a, it's another journey that I'm not sure where it's going to go, but um, it's going to be good. I know that. I just love the way you approach everything. I mean, you, what I what I observe about you is this kind of unstoppable energy and movement forward. You know, I think a lot of times people get, as we get older, start to settle back and there's a resignation that sets in and a, this is the way I've always been. And But you seem to kind of keep reinventing yourself. What Can you talk to that a little bit? Like, do you see that in yourself? Um. You know, I don't, I mean, it's interesting to me because, you know, like we have a couple of friends now that are retiring and I'm like, well, gosh, okay, now what? I mean, I mean, I like to travel, but I can travel and meet makers and do all of this together. Um, I also find that working on projects and again, maybe that beginning and launching and then kind of seeing what you've created is sort of what gets me going. But I don't know. I, I, um, it's hard to say. I think it's just, it's, um, I don't ever see stopping, you know, like if I'm stopping, there's going to be a reason that I can't do it. And I, um, I kind of like it. Maybe it's even like baking and cooking. You never know what the outcome is going to be, but it's worth the, it's worth the journey to kind of get there and, and ah. see what you made. And then, and then I also enjoy people kind of consuming it. You know, like, it's great to hear the stories and that gives me new ideas to like, gosh, what if we did this or we did that? And um, I'm just kind of blessed to be in a time that I can do it and around a creative community globally that's like, yeah, let's do it. I mean, they give me as much energy as I get from them. So it's a, it's a good thing. Yeah. And for your listeners, I'd say if there's anything that you... There should be no woulda, shoulda, couldas. It's like, just do it. In any regard, you can make an impact, especially in your community. And now's the time. We need it. So. Oh, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to me. And, and 
I'm so excited to see where you go from here. And uh, I will put links in the show notes so that people can go and check out to Cameron Rowe um, and, and a lot of the other stuff that you've mentioned here, the Maker Music Festival in, in mid-May. Is that right? Um, is there anywhere for people to go yet to, to see what's happening there? Um, right now we're doing a call to makers and it's um, makermusicfestival.com. Pretty simple. Okay, um, great. More, more information will be coming. We're still in kind of the gathering, you know, we're bringing the gang together. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I would follow that. And I think we're going to have a pretty nice, interesting festival that people can follow along with that weekend. Very exciting. Well, thank you again, Sherry. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for doing what you're doing too. It's um, great to have a community that you can, you know, share ideas with and grow yourself. So I, I'm with you, you man. I, I don't intend on ever stopping as long as I like what I'm doing. So, and I hope that, I hope that everybody can feel the sense of energy uh, that, that, that comes from that, you know, uh, that where we just don't stop exploring and it's not about the end. It's about where it's about the journey, you know, it's so it's cliche, it's so cliche, but it's about the journey. It's about stepping in and allowing yourself to fail and just seeing where it goes. Right. Exactly. That's it. All right. It's, that's, it's so, it's so simple. I mean, there's nothing like overly complex here. It's just, just do it. And, and if you fail, learn from it and move on. Love it. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Well, there you have it. I love Sherry's energy and can do attitude. I think the biggest thing I took from my conversation with her is the idea that you can move towards an idea you believe in without having it all figured out at the beginning. If you believe in what you want to do, you go forward and you figure it out as you go. <laughs> Seems so simple, right? If you want to check out the videos in Decameron Row, I'll have that information for you in the show notes. And if you're listening to the podcast in real time during this last week of March of 2021, the Maker Music Festival has put out a call to makers, music makers, who want to participate in the Maker Music Festival. Just go to latebloomerliving.com forward slash podcast and click on the show notes for episode 43 to find all the links. And while you're there, you can also find a link to the sign up sheet for your free guide, Five Steps to Your Midlife Reboot. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a fantastic week. Stay safe and well. Talk soon.